Good evening, everybody. My name is Francisco Panizza. I teach Latin American politics in the government department, and I'll be chairing this meeting. Uh, it is my pleasure to introduce our public speaker today, uh, Chile Minister of Finance, Mr. Felipe Larraín Bascuñán. Minister Larraín certainly is not strange to the LSE. This is his third visit, I think, and I think the LSE authorities are a little bit concerned he will ask for a professorial salary for his visit. But it is a pleasure to have him here. Uh, because we are running a little bit late, I will spare the details of Minister Larraín's highly distinguished curriculum. Just let me say that he combines public life with a very distinguished acad academic career that has uh, spanned through many years both in Chile in the Universidad Católica and in Harvard University in the U.S. So without any further ado, I will ask uh, Minister Larraín to address the audience on the topic of the state of the world economy, a view from an emerging market. Thank you. Where is my presentation here? <laughs> I only see nice uh, pictures of people. Okay, good. Yes, here it is. Well, uh, thank you very much. A pleasure to be here again. The third year in a row that I've been coming here to London. I had the opportunity today to um, inaugurate the London Stock Exchange. Then I had the opportunity to inaugurate the trading of copper in the London Metal Exchange. Uh, and, you know, several uh, other uh, activities which are not over. This is my third and my last, uh, the last time I will be here as a finance minister. I'm not saying it's the last. I will be here as a finance minister of the government of President Piñera because we are ending our period in March. And from March 11th, I will be a free man again, going back to academia, going back to uh, what I used to do before, which was to write uh, books, papers, participate in conference, and l uh, be able to listen uh, to good music without any other thing on my head. So... With that, uh, let me start uh, with what I had to say. Well, this was the, yes, the world economy, but I'll take a view from Chile, you know. Uh, but let me start by saying, what is the context of the world economy? We have weakness in developed markets and deceleration in develop, developing or emerging markets. But uh, sometimes when we're into this issue of the world economy, we're looking a lot at the current situation and what's happening with the QE, and of course that's interesting, what's happening in the short-term part of the cycle, but sometimes we get lost in the long-term uh, major structural changes that we're seeing in the whole economy. In 1980, developed economies were almost 70% of world GDP, of the world economy, and emerging economies were 30% of the world economy. In, 19, in 2012, it's 50-50. So this is one of the major structural changes that we are enduring today in the world economy. The fact that we are now, we emerging, emerging markets, I come from an emerging market, um, that we are half of the world economy today. But if we count, look at this. During the 80s and, you know, the 80s basically, emerging economies accounted for 40% 
of the growth of the world is different than the overall share of output, the share of growth of the world economy, and developed economies were 60%. Look at what's happening in the last 12 years. Emerging economies account for 80% of growth in the world economy, and developed economies only 20%. So who is the steam of the world economy? It is us, the emerging markets. It is, of course, China, of course, many countries in Asia, but also Latin America. And that's a welcome news. But it's also a fundamental structural change. We are seeing now one of the most fundamental structural changes that we will see in our lifetime in economics, you know, in the world economy. And this will continue. This will continue. Uh, of course, we have a recession in the middle, and we have an atypical, atypical recession, because during that recession, it was a recession engineered and suffered mostly by the developed economies. And we, in the emerging world, were able to weather those shocks uh, you know, in a much better way. But um, we will soon be more than half of the world economy, and we will keep accounting for more, significantly more than 50% of the growth of the world economy. What's the current share in world GDP? The United States, 19%. The European Union, 19.4%. China, this is at purchasing power rates, which is a different than if you calculate at market exchange rates, because this corrects for the purchasing power of the dollar. China, 15%. Look, at purchasing power, you know, China is almost, you know, is reaching the U.S., different on market rates, because the PPP rates inflate more the output of emerging markets, and it somehow dampens the, market, the, the, the size of the uh, developed countries. Latin America is about 9% of the world economy, a very similar rate that we have, maybe a little over that, that we have at PPP rates. Let's go to the more... Uh, direct situation that we're facing. After six consecutive quarters of negative growth in the second half of this year, so second quarter so of this year, we saw one quarter with positive growth, only 0.3% growth. But six quarters of negative growth. Does this mean that is the end of the recession? Well, it may be the end of the recession, but we are far away from a solid recovery in Europe. I am happy to be now in England and uh, happy to see that uh, the economy is really picking up here and that the growth rate is probably going to be around 25 to 3%. Uh, so that is, uh, you know, a very significant <coughs> improvement over a recession. Policies are finally, uh, you know, paying off. And uh, the fiscal consolidation that happened is now, uh, you know, delivering results. But far from over. In the United States, we're seeing a pretty strong recovery. Well, that's just one quarter, 2.5. Probably the year's rate of growth will be about 2. Well, 2 is not a very significant pace of growth, but it's much better than having a recession or growing about half a percentage point as the situation in Europe is today. I'm not saying, well, yes, there is correction, there is better, a better situation, but uh, you have uh, still 2% growth in the U.S. With uh, the interesting thing about the U.S., though, that I will point out, because it's, uh, it's, it's one thing that I will be studying more if I had more time. It will be an academic. And that's maybe some of you who are students. It, 
it's so interesting to see that the U.S. has had such a big adjustment, a big fiscal adjustment, and in spite of the fiscal adjustment, probably two to three percentage points of GDP after the um, the fiscal cliff and the uh, you know the adjustments on taxes and spending that followed, and yet is growing. When you have such an adjustment, you see well this economy will probably start to. Uh, decline or is going to have it 's a major impact to have a two to three percentage point of GDP adjustment in one year you know that 's what the u s is enduring yet it is growing so that 's interesting and uh, job creation not great, but still you know around uh, slightly less than the two hundred thousand jobs per month you know one hundred and seventy thousand jobs per month and this is something for you to think I think this is a, a pretty interesting graph. What you see here is that the U.S. and Europe suffered similar shock in 2009, 2008, 2009. And the unemployment rate shot up to about 10% in both economies. What has happened since then? Well, that the U.S. has been able to reduce the unemployment rate to 7.3. And in Europe, it has kept escalating until it sort of reached here a plateau around 12%. This 5 percentage point gap between unemployment in the U.S. and Europe is not only, well, it's partly explained by growth, but it's also explained by more rigid labor markets. U.S. labor markets are very flexible, uh, and they provide for adjustment for the opportunities. People are, uh, the typical finding of, um, you know, papers uh, and economic analysis of the U.S. labor market is that people spend short spells of unemployment rather than people, um, you know, spending long times in the unemployment queue, which make for a hysteresis that you probably know if you're students of economics, you know what hysteresis in economics. There are other, you have a conception of hysteresis in physics. But, uh, so, interesting, the adjustment in the U.S., relatively low unemployment rate. But still, we are, uh, before we dismiss uh, all the problems, and we say, well, the U.S. is doing well, beware of the, what's happening with the largest monetary experiment in, uh, you know, in, probably in history, if you take off, take off the periods of hyperinflation where money bases doubled, tripled, you know, over a very short period of time. This is a period in which you had very low inflations, and yet the money base in the U.S. has multiplied by four, over four, in a period of about five years. Well, that's unprecedented. What happened in the U.S.? Well, what happened is that fiscal policy reached a limit. The interest rate was at zero. And when you have fiscal policy at that level, interest rates at zero, then you say, how do I keep helping the economy? Then you start with QE, quantitative easing. You start buying assets, and that's what uh, the U.S. has been doing. Right now, with QE3, QE3, some of you here can think, you know, some people hear QE. What's QE? Queen, Queen Elizabeth? Two? Three? No. It's quantitative easing. You know, it's different concepts. Uh, QE3 started this year at a pace of $85 billion per month. That's the increase in the monetary base through the purchase of long-term monetary uh, long-term bonds. Few months ago, Ben Bernanke, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, said that, you know, according to his analysis and the analysis of the Fed, then that you know QE will start to tamp taper off. So we're talking now about QE tapering. And what does QE tapering mean? 
means that this $85 billion increase per month in the monetary base, which is boosting the economy and spreading all over because those dollars go chasing assets overseas as well, not only in the U.S., that's going to start to gradually decline. If that happens, if that starts to gradually decline, then interest rates immediately responded. So what happened to the long-term bond rate? Well, the long-term bond rate shot up from about 1.7%. The 10-year, this is the sort of the bread and butter in the bond markets. You look to the 10-year government bond yield. U.S. Treasuries, 10-year, right now, 2.9. So you had 110, 120 basis point adjustment in the long rate. Well, that... If it happens very quickly, well, it could be a big uh, um, pull, pull in the brakes of the recovery, you know, because long-term rates will affect, uh, you know, long-term interest rates will affect investment. So investment pulls back because of a very sudden increase in interest rates. That has a, that, a problem. So beware of this. I, frankly speaking, and this is, you know, I'm not saying monetary policy, CC fiscal policy isn't either, but it seems that with QE, it's as if the doctor put a medicine on the patient. The patient got addicted, and now the doctor doesn't know how to take the medicine away. That's pretty much the situation of QE. Really, they don't know how to start taking this monetary injection out. China, the China that we knew, the China that grew 10% per year, and this is one of the most unprecedented things that have happened of any economy in world's history, Three decades, since 1978 to 2008, the Chinese economy's growth was 9.8% average per year, 10% per year. And that explains why China today is about 15% of the world economy at purchasing power parity rates. Uh, those grow that growth is over. Now we are in for a China that is growing at 75 it's not a disaster, but it's still two to two and a half percentage points less than it used to grow. With this, copper prices, commodity prices are lower, currencies start to depreciate in commodity producing countries. I'll get to that when I come to Chile. And in Latin America, let me say we have two speed economic growth, and just to call your attention, maybe some of you know about this the Pacific Alliance. What is the Pacific Alliance? It's these four countries, Peru, Chile, Colombia, and Mexico. These are the fastest growing countries in Latin America right now. And they are part of the alliance, which means that they will eliminate tariffs in a very short period of time, and they will integrate their financial markets, and they will stop short of creating a common market that, like you have in Europe with free movement of people and capital, and, but will stimulate the flow of people, the flow of capital, not yet that one, can, one person from one country can work on another. Maybe that's, uh, you know, some years ahead. Interesting thing about the Pacific Alliance, countries that are growing more, it's on the Pacific, but I'll tell you a story. Uh, we got a recent meeting of finance ministers in Chile, the first official meeting. I hosted the meeting, and my colleagues came from Colombia, Mexico, and Peru. And we got a call from Uruguay, who said, well, I want to go. I mean, if you can attend. And, you know, good friend of us, so we said, you can come. But, but really, this is the Pacific Alliance. You have a problem, you are in the Atlantic. You know, uh, but he said, I'm still interested, even if I'm in the Atlantic. Who knows? He said, maybe you'll change the name of the alliance later on and I can join. So we have now 20 observers 
in the Pacific Alliance. Among them, U.S., Canada, China. Not only from Latin America. There are already applications to join. We don't have an, you know, a, a, an entry procedure. We're, we're very young. We started in 2011. So we're only two years old, but still young, promising, growing. I just mentioned this because these are the members. We have two trillion, this is a $2 trillion economy, population of almost 210 million, GDP per capita, $10,000, at PPP rates, 14,000, almost 14,000. This is the hottest topic in Latin American integration today and in the Americas. And I tell you, these four economies are larger than Brazil in terms of market size, in terms of population, about the size, but slightly larger than Brazil. Uh, Brazil hasn't uh, you know, applied for any kind of, uh, you know, uh, membership. But, you know, we're happy. We will grow in the future. We grow like-minded countries. This is not an issue of right and left uh, of the political spectrum. We have countries on the left of the political center, the right, right of center, left of center. We have countries that are like-minded, that open to the world, to trade, investment, capital flows. We share many things. 35% of the of GDP, eh, of Latin American GDP, 35%, about the same rate of the population. In summary, what do we have? We have weak growth still in the developed markets, although news are slightly better, and we have a deceleration in the emerging world. This deceleration in the emerging world, we are very keen. We can live with a China that grows at 75 but it certainly has an impact on commodity prices and on currencies. You know, and uh, you know the rest of the uh, you know, continent, Latin America, is uh, uh, grows more than the world, but only slightly more. Well, let me now turn to the Chilean economy. We have growth, employment, and inflation under control. Let me start by saying uh, we've been able to, over the last four years, to restart, you know, really strongly the growth of the Chilean economy, uh, growth rates of uh, average 5.8, 2010-2012, less deceleration in 2013, we'll have about 5.5% growth during our, um, you know, during the current government. The important thing is not only how you're growing, but you say, well, I can compare how it was with the past. True, we have been able to grow. We're growing not double, but, you know, 70% more than we used to grow in the previous administration. But we're growing more than the world. How much more than the world? We're growing about 1.7, on average, 1.7 percentage points more than the world economy. That's the benchmark. You know, if the world economy is booming, if the world economy is growing at 5%, and you're growing at 4.5, that's no big deal. If the world economy is growing at 3 and you're growing at 4.5, that is a big deal because you're doing significantly better than the world economy, and you're probably catching up in terms of your level of income. What's this growth based on? It's based on gross fixed capital formation. Uh, over the period we have final data, 2010-2012, uh, 13% increase in investment. Less than nine, a little less than nine on private consumption. Less in government consumption. This is a very important issue. We believe that the engine of growth of the economy should not be government spending. We should, government spending, and I'll get back to this, should set the stage so we have a healthy macro environment for the development of investment and also to have a solid increase in consumption because after all, 
uh, that's what, you know, we want to have people getting more welfare, you know, better welfare, better uh, situation for the, uh, for the Chileans. Exports growing less. And why is this? Well, we have a complicated world economy, you know, and so we have suffered. Our exports are suffered. Growth has been subdued at less than 10, the 3%. Investment, this is the recession, very strong recession in 2009. Chile declined more than the world economy. World economy uh, declined by 0.6%, Chile by 1%. And we had then very strong growth of investment with some deceleration in the last couple of quarters. Some deceleration, yet growing strongly, but you know, growing uh, less than the average over this very strong period, 2010-2012. But even with this, in 2012, we've reached the highest level of investment to GDP, the investment rate is the highest in over 50 years, in over half a century since we have uh, data this is what we get, and this is a very solid thing, because we're getting to what we said, if we want to grow at 6%, we probably need to push the investment rate even higher than this, probably to 28, uh, to the 28, 30% range. That should be, you know, and that's within our, our reach, but it's not easy to get there and sustain the investment rate. A lot of employment creation, the average employment growth over you know, since 2010 and into the first half of 2013, 4.3% average annual uh, employment growth. More job creation among women, welcome, because we have a relatively low rate of women's participation in the labor force. This is in Chile less than 50%. We started 43% in our government. We're now slightly over 47% uh, women's participation in the labor force. So it's good that we're creating 55, 57% um, employment among women, 43 among men. By the way, these are, way, are, are, are employments that have, 90% of them have contracts, uh, unemployment insurance, and welfare benefits. So they're good quality uh, uh, jobs. They're not just precarious uh, jobs. The unemployment rate has declined to a 30-year low. The latest rate is 5.7%. That is the lowest since we have comparable data. That's back to 1986 when we started with this moving quarter of uh, unemployment, uh, uh, the unemployment measure of moving quarters. And we have real wages increasing very significantly. The last uh, uh, figures are real wages increasing at over 3%. Inflation at about 22 well, just to mention, I put this, this uh, dotted line here at 2 and 4 because that's the toleration range of the central bank target. The central bank target is 3, 3% per year, plus minus 2%. We are at the bottom part of the uh, inflation uh, band of the central bank. Let me just show a bit of, you know, where the progress, if you measure it, GDP per capita, at PPP in 2012 dollars, you have a three, uh, three time increase since 1985. So by 2012, our per capita income is close to 18.5 thousand dollars. The rate for 2012 will be over 19 thousand dollars. Inflation, we already saw, but you know, this is a part of something that we have been able to achieve with an autonomous central bank setting an inflation target. This inflation target at 3%, we are 
at around 3%. There's some deviation, but the interesting thing is that we are now pretty much at world levels of inflation. We've been able to improve over the last four years our fiscal balance. We received a 3.1% of GDP um, a structural deficit. This is just a point. We are very concerned in Chile about the structural. The, we have a structural rule for fiscal policy. So we don't spend according to current revenue. We spend according to structural revenue. We calculate structural revenue at the long-term copper price. And who determines long-term copper price? Not the government. An independent committee of experts from, uh, of experts from uh, you know, across the political spectrum, respected economists, experts on copper markets, we call them, and we say, what's the long-term copper price? And they have said, well, the long-term copper price for... Last year's back to 306 per pound. Now it's 327. And for this year, 304. That determines our... Uh, we have been able to reduce about two percentage points. This is our pro latest projection, but we will update this projection in the budget that we will submit to Congress by the end of this month. So we will get... We've been able to reduce about two percentage points. Uh, the, um, that's about a fiscal adjustment in Chile's, uh, according to Chile's GDP, of about $5.6 billion per year of, uh, you know, going from a 3% of GDP government deficit to, a, uh, to a one, about a 1% of GDP government deficit. We have been able to recover sovereign funds. There was a, an important use of the sovereign funds in 2009 at the time of the recession. At about $9 billion of those funds were used. Gradually, we have been contributing to the, uh, to the funds because of two reasons. First of all, we are obliged by law to contribute to the funds, particularly the pension reserve fund here in red. But this one, we have made contributions that go beyond our uh, legal commitment. So we have made voluntary contributions to get to the sovereign funds to the levels, and by the end of this year we will have more than the previous peak in 2008. This is pretty good, uh, you know, to have had, this is the very special period of time in which during the last four years we had improvements in our credit rating of the country by each of the major, of the four major credit rating agencies. Moody's, Fitch, Standard & Poor's, DBRS, we are pretty much today at AA minus. You know, we are the highest uh, credit rating in Latin America and one of the uh, highest in the emerging world. This is a, a, an interesting point because when you, say, you, when you say, well, what do I do with credit ratings? What are they good for? You know, to, to look good? Well, certainly you look good, you know, if you have a good credit rating. But then there's a very practical thing. You can raise capital in the international markets in very competitive terms. We raised, uh, we went uh, in the last three years, we've gone three times to the international markets. We are placed at 389, this is a 10-year bond, 10-year sovereign bond at 389, at 335, and at 238. Actually, to be precise, 2.379 was the yield on the sovereign bond we placed in 2012. This is the lowest rate in Chile's history. We started, it's interesting because our first sovereign issue was in 1822 when the republic was very young, uh, you know, about... 12 years after independence, we've had now the lowest rate. That's why I put this very, you know, fat point here, just to call your attention, on the 2.38. 
This is not only the lowest rate in our history, it's the lowest rate that any emerging market has uh, raised money on a 10-year with a 10-year bond in history, and it is the, also the lowest spread. It is 55 basis points over treasuries. We couldn't do that over U.S. treasuries. We couldn't do this now. Why? Because when we did this, the rate, the U.S. treasuries were at 1.8, and that's part of the reason we went to the market. We didn't need too much the money, but we wanted to set a benchmark for our private companies to go to the market. So this is not only a way in which the government can raise money on very competitive terms. This is one of the best competitive advantages that Chile has. Because when a country wants to go, our companies invest abroad. They invest all over Latin America. And they raise capital on the best terms than their competitors. So yes, I'm not going to touch on this, I don't have the time, but yes, we have a relatively high cost of energy, but we have the lowest cost of capital. So yes, one is a competitive disadvantage, cost of energy, the other is a huge competitive advantage. Poverty. We have been able to reduce slightly poverty. Uh, I don't want to say that, you know, this is a... You know, we have won the fight against poverty, but poverty is pretty low, and we were able to reduce it. Uh, that's the last figure on poverty. We calculated every two years we will have the 2013 poverty rate in 2014, uh, and we expect it to come down again. But this is a long-term fight. You know, we have been able to reduce poverty. We have been able to reduce indigence. What is indigence? Those who are the poorest of the poor, those who are devoting all their monetary income to nutrition, to their nutritional needs, cannot get the basic consumption basket, the basic nutrition basket. So these are really the poorest of the poor. But 2.8% of the Chileans living in poverty, uh, living in indigence or extreme poverty, however you want to call it, uh, this is a progress, but still we have an issue. And, uh, and yes, if you say how are we doing with this, well, GDP per capita we already talked three times, you know, increase if you uh, measure it at market rates, three times also if you measure it at PPP rates. Life expectancy, we're almost 80 years at birth. So those are, that's the life expectancy of someone that is born. That's pretty good. Infant mortality from 30 per thousand live births to eight in 2012. Expected years of schooling from 7.3 to 9.7. Adult literacy rate from 19.7 to 98.6. So these are all things that come when the country is growing, when you have good social policies and you have revenues that you spend adequately. And let me say where we are with life expectancy. We're, it's almost as good as you're born in Chile or in the UK. You see? That's 80 years you can have and expect to live 80 years. It's better than if you're born in the U.S. Interestingly, Chile, with $15,000 per capita, have a higher life expectancy than the U.S. And what's the reason? We eat healthier food. <laughs> and we drink better wine. <laughs> so that's something that... This is, a, this is a very significant change because it has a lot of implications. Great that you live longer, but when you live longer, what happens to your pensions if you say, oh, I only want to work until 65? Sure, great. But then, how gonna you, are you going to manage if... So, I encourage people, work longer, you know. 
I personally don't want to stop working, you know, but I could be considered a workaholic, but for some people, yes, they want to retire. But you have to consider that other, if you want the state to come in and put money, maybe you want to plan and do some voluntary contributions and retire a little later if you want to sustain your standard of living. This is an issue, so it's a good thing, but it creates tensions on other markets. That's the general equilibrium nature of economics. Adult literacy rate, we're almost at 99%, which is the rate of, you know, well, many countries better than most in Latin America and closer to Italy, Poland, and Slovenia. And many other countries, the developed countries are not here because the U.S., the U.K., well, they have 100%. It's a pretty much 100%, so negligible difference from 100%. Infant mortality, Chile with eight. We have uh, very close to the United States again. You know, the United States have more than three times per capita income, and we only have a one in a thousand lit births of difference in infant mortality. Let me point to challenges. Uh, yes, there are many in Chile. Copper was, sorry, copper was 75% of exports in Chile in 1970. It's still 53%. So we are highly dependent on natural resources, in particular on copper. So that's why what's happening in China, we very follow very closely you know, what happens in China because a very sudden stop of the Chinese economy you know, will have a very big impact on a country that depends more than 50% of export revenue on copper. Exposure to China, 23%. Again, what do the Chinese buy from us? Mainly copper, again. They buy more than about 90% of what the Chinese buy is copper. We're expanding significantly other types of staples that we sell to China, but uh, if you consider Brazil, Peru, Argentina, look at a country like Mexico, 1.7% dependence on China. In fact, the situation is different. Mexico and China are competitors. You know, we are we're co complementary to each other. Income distribution. We have an issue here. We have made some progress on income distribution, mild progress, small progress over the last few years. Uh, income distribution we have in the Latin American scene, we have uh, you know, middle to high income, uh, income inequality measured by Gini. Gini goes between zero and one. Zero is total equality. One is one person has all the income of the country. So it goes from zero to one. The closest you probably have in an economy, although I don't know, we have the data is Brunei, where the sultan holds most of the income of the country. But in other countries, in the OECD, average is 0 0.31. Poverty, we have the lowest rate of poverty in Latin America, but still, we have 14% of the Chilean population living below poverty rate. Where are we? Well, look at this. Well, now if you take, we are at 18.4, 2012, 2013, 2013 will be about 19,000, slightly over 19,000. Where do we want to get? 22,000 if we grow. On 2016, if we grow at 5% per capita per year, tough to grow at 5% per capita, even if uh, with a population growth rate, which is uh, slightly less than 1%, but close to 1% per year. That's the population growth rate of Chile. It used to be more than double that you know, 20 years ago, but population growth rates have declined. That's partly the reason why our government uh, is providing a bonus for the third child and on. So couples are, I'm not saying a couple will have 
uh, you know, maybe for many it won't make a difference. But for, me, for some, it could make a difference. So stimulating birth, and this is a policy that has been applied in several countries in Europe, to stimulate you know, um, birth. 2018, you go, if you grow at 3%, you go to 22,000 in 2018. If you grow at 1% per capita, then you have to wait until 2030. So this is the magic of growth, the magic of opportunity. You can take people out of poverty, and I'm sure that we can make a big progress in inequality. We can reduce our inequality if we keep the pace. Are we yet a developed country? No. We're close to the doorstep of development. But we can never forget that many countries, in fact most countries, that were on the path to development got derailed and where um, they were so-called the, this is the so-called middle income trap. You may have heard of the middle income trap. Well, the middle income trap is, a, you know, is somehow that you're in the road to development, and then you start building pressures for demands, social demands, and then you start giving in to social demands. Good to give in to social demands in a way that you can sustain. But you need to sustain growth. You need to sustain employment creation. If you're going to give in to social demands and create a fiscal problem, higher inflation, you're going to then lose ground, and then you're not going to get to development. There is an interesting study by the World Bank that says that in 1960, there were about 100 countries that the World Bank study followed uh, that were sort of emerging, considered emerging, developing nations with prospects of getting to development. Of those 100 countries, only 10 became developed by 2012. So you get a 50-year span, and you, you see what's happening to countries that undergo the path to development, and you understand that this is a very tough road, that countries that endure and get to development are 10%, 90% get derailed. So that is why we need to be so careful here, because there are no magic solutions in economics. There are no magic. There are no shortcuts. There is hard work. There is responsible work, and there is the social cohesion, which is so important, but people need to understand. And each group in society, and you know this is part of the, of the problems that we have, each group has their own demands. Legitimate. But if everybody wants to get, and to put all the accent on the demands that you have, and not get put any accent on the duties. See, when an economy grows, you have some more duties as well. It's not just more rights. Right to, to this, right to that, good. But be careful. Um, one final thought. This year, we passed through Congress a law. And here we have one Chilean congressman, a good friend from the opposition, here sitting in the front line, who this was a unanimous approval of this law, both in the Chamber and the Senate. We eliminated, Chile has 60 free trade agreements, sorry, trade agreements with 50 countries, 60 countries, cover more than 93% of our exports. These are all bilateral, multilateral, but they are, I give you give. So I give you access to, your, to my market, you give me access to your market, and then several other things. This year, we thought we had a responsibility to those who are less well-off in the world economy, and we have approved into law the elimination, complete elimination of import tariffs, complete meaning zero, zero quota, zero tariff for the 42 
least developed countries of the world. They are countries in Africa, in Asia, Haiti, in our hemisphere, that we would like to give them free access to our markets without asking anything in return. There are other countries that are doing this, mainly developed nations. Chile is the first developing nation that has granted completely free trade access to developed, to these least developed countries, classified by the United Nations. So it's not just that we figured out who they were. This is a list of countries put up by the UN based on the vulnerability, their external vulnerability, low levels of human capital, and, uh, you know, levels of very low social cohesions and very low income per capita. So this is one thing I hope that uh, some other countries follow. And I just give you this thought because sometimes when a country's the, the true risk is that when you believe, oh, I'm growing, I take growth for granted, I take job creation for granted. Don't take it for granted because many countries have discovered to their loss that, uh, you know, suddenly these things evaporate and that you're left back with much less tools. Uh, you have uh, to be able to solve the problems of those who are most at need. Thank you very much. I'll be happy to take uh, a few questions as usual. Um, I think we are going to organize a Q&A with uh, rounds of three and then the minister will reply. Uh, and you did mention you are about to qualify for the World Cup as well. Well, we are almost qualified for the World Cup, but not completely. In fact, uh, uh, yes, we're almost there. But I don't want to count because mathematically it's possible that we don't qualify. So if you start, you know, it's like celebrating before you have the title. I'm, I happen to be from one team, you know, very deep in my heart and that lost a championship two years ago when we had it in our pocket. And I suffered deeply. For a week, I didn't go out. So I don't want to... Okay, um, the first question, I, I'm not sure if I'm microphone circulating. Yeah, there. Um, yeah, you there. Hi, my name is Ignacio. My question is, what is the Chilean government doing currently to reduce uh, the dependency on Cooper? I think it's an important thing to, to achieve the, the complete development. I'll take three. Okay, you just answer it. I'll take three, and then I'll... Okay, I'll second there. The, the, yeah, the lady there, yeah. Hello. Um, just following on from your point about eliminating the tariffs and quotas for the least developed countries, um, I was wondering what your assessment of how that will change your imports and exports. So what impact do you think it will have on what you're importing and what you're exporting from those countries? Can you, can you use the first part again? Tapering? Uh, so the, the impact of removing the tariffs and quotas for the least developed countries... Oh, okay. Um, what impact do you think that will have on your import and export composition? Thanks. Okay, and a third question. Yes, at the front row there. You mentioned um, the proportion of GDP that is going on in capital investment, which is some, something like 26%. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that, or implied government policies would be trying to push that up to 28%. 
To what extent is this to do with government? What have you done so far to encourage investment? Or is this actually largely to do with the copper industry? Okay, first round. Sure, I'll take these uh, first three. Um, Dependency on copper, how can we reduce dependency on copper? Uh, Well, this is a, a tough issue. First of all, you have the copper, you have the... Um, natural resources on the ground you have uh, environmental laws you respect the environmental laws but then you get investment going into those sectors and you might as well take the copper out you know so it's the so we're doing that but uh, then we are um, at the same time we have many other sectors with very high rates of growth but starting from a very low base for example uh, number one well, wine is a very interesting industry because uh, it, it's relatively small. It's like 1.6. We export about 1.6 billion dollars of wine. Thank you very much because the UK is the number one importer of Chilean wine at a very close uh, contact with the US. But that is a very interesting industry with a lot of investments and you know enologists going to Chile and and uh, you know a lot of research. And that's not a commodity. Very far from a commodity. Uh, salmon, we got into a very good start, then we got some problems in, in salmon with uh, um, a signal that what was developed in Chile, but services. Services is an interesting industry in several areas that we are, um, but let me mention one. We have, and one that is very current, we have now a law in Congress that uh, today was almost finally voted, which is the law of the single funds, the single law of funds for management, asset management for, you know, for, for uh, third parties. So when you have professional asset management, and Chile can export these kind of services. And this is a very high growth industry. We are under management about $42 billion. And what we basically say, if you are an asset manager managing for an outside investment an investor, and you hold mainly outside assets, you don't pay no capital gains tax because you're managing of the only thing you're doing is basically in Chile is you are performing the service of asset management. I think we have a lot of competitive advantage in that industry. There are many, maybe many other industries related to IT, IT services, information technology services, which are also a way to diversify away from copper. We have a very strong uh, fruit sector. Now we are among the top two producers of blueberries. So when you eat a blueberry, think of us. Um, There may be many other uh, uh, areas, but I think that it's not an easy thing. But what we do have, interestingly, is we have a floating rate. So what happened when China's growth declined to 7.5%, the exchange rate depreciated about 6%, and now is becoming more profitable. Uh, So the exchange rate is a very important tool to uh, deliver this uh, diversification. Second, what do we expect to to happen? Tariffs and quotas. When we remove tariffs and quotas from the uh, least developed countries, well, these countries, there are 42 countries. They account for about 12 percent of the world population, yet less than 1% of world trade. So they're very, very small in terms of trade. And we were seeing that in some particular industries, we were not importing from these countries because uh, because of the 6% general tariff level. We have a 6% import tariff, that's general, but our average tariff is less than one. 
Why? Because we have so many free trade agreements and so a lot of imports coming at zero tariff into Chile. So you have a lot of zeros and some sixes. And the sixes were all, you know, not all, but many of the sixes were from these countries. So then we don't import from them. These countries, some of them are oil producing nations. We're buying oil from other guys and we're not buying oil. And energy, um, natural gas, uh, from them on the you know LNG liquefied natural gas we could buy from some of these people and we're buying from others so I think there are many things that we can do but we expect you know relatively little growth for example they are not very competitive in in the in fabrics in in clothing and other industry mainly in energy you know but maybe who knows when you have zero tariff then you're competing uh, uh, very well in the in the overall economy. Investment to GDP, well, uh, there are a number of things we've done to increase the, improve the investment rate. The, the first thing that we did, well, there were some measures, some tax measures, like uh, eliminating, uh, we have a special regime that you're if a small, medium-sized business, an SME, uh, then you don't pay corporate tax if you reinvest earnings, up to a limit. You know, but but your first, let's say, hundred and forty thousand dollars, hundred thirty thousand dollars of profit. If you reinvest that profit, you pay no, uh, you pay no tax. So that's a big uh, incentive to reinvest. Uh, we have about two hundred thousand SMEs on those special regimes that exempt them from, um, you know, corporate tax. If you reinvest, that, you know, we started one of them. Uh, previous government started other uh, of these regimes. Second thing, we reduced significantly the credit. We have a credit tax. We call the Impuesto de Timbres y Estampillas, meaning the stamp and uh, uh, well, basically the stamp tax. Uh, and this tax was 1.2%. What does it mean? Any loan you get, you're going to pay 1.2% in tax. Now it's 0.4. So we reduced the cost of getting a loan that helped investment and of course and also consumption doesn't you know consumption if you're getting a loan for whatever purpose you're paying less tax um, and we also I'm mentioning a few of the things we did uh, we also when we got to power uh, all the we made our statement to the country during the campaign and we had an important boost of entrepreneurial confidence. So all the measures of confidence that we don't take them, huh? it's the private sector that takes those measures of you know, um, entrepreneurial expectations, consumer confidence, they all showed up very quickly. And I think that was part of what we could do with a coherent uh, macroeconomic program. With government spending growing less than GDP, that's another important thing, with government spending lowering less, which is what we have done during these th three years, uh, with these three and a half years, then you have low interest rates, lower inflation, and more competitive rate. So that's part of what we've done. Yes, the lady there with the glasses. Yeah. I just I have two questions. First, you said uh, there's a sort of like a two-speed Latin America. So in terms of future growth, do you think that would sort of depend on political ideology rather than economic fundamentals? And the second question is, everyone's really concerned about the effects of tapering on the emerging markets. So are you concerned about the Chilean peso in any way? And what are you planning to protect your currency if you're concerned indeed? 
So these are two questions. I'll take one more. At the back there, um, can you repeat the first part of the first question? Because you have you have very beautiful British accent, but for my ears, it's kind of yeah. You said, I mean, you talked about two speed Latin American yes. um, sort of economy. So my question is, is that going to sort of depend on political ideology or economic fundamentals? And so the one there at the back. You spoke at the end about uh, developing countries falling by the way, not quite making it, the middle income trap. Of the countries in the last, well, since the Second World War that have caught up to the developed world, we've seen uh, a kind of concurrent increase in political freedoms. So my question is, do you think that China can sustain its levels of growth without also increasing the uh, inclusive, inclusivity of its political institutions or not? I take another one yeah. more? Or? Another one? Okay, here at the front. Um, I'm, I'm, I want to know a little bit more about uh, the real estate market and which is the message to, to the rest of the world in terms of security and opportunities. Uh, on the thing of two-speed, um, there's two-speed two uh, growth um, in Latin America, well, I think it depends. I'm a firm believer that, uh, in I've written on this subject, it depends uh, very little on ideology, political ideology depends on economic fundamentals. And the thing, the true thing is that when you have governments in the left and the right of the of center of the political spectrum that are taking similar measures, that are basically fiscally responsible, that are um, open to markets, and that try to, uh, are conductive to private investment, I think that is a, a pretty essential. And you don't have to be the government which is center-right. And we are center-right. I'm not ashamed. Of, of course, I'm very proud of it. But uh, but we are uh, very good friends, you know, and people in this alliance for the Pacific Alliance, we have people center-left, you know, like, uh, you know, the Peruvian government uh, is not uh, center-right, you know. But we are applying similar policies. So in the end, it's about agreeing on a path to development. Then the ideology comes later uh, in terms of how you use the proceeds and, you know, there may be many things, but uh, I don't... It is like a little bit like... Uh, it brings me back to the story of populism. In populism in Latin America was uh, was a very, very uh, bad feature of Latin America in the past, and populism was pursued by governments in the right and left of the political spectrum. So it's just a difference between responsible macroeconomic policy and uh, responsible economic policy, trying to spur uh, productivity and investment. Uh, on the tapering, what are we doing? So far, nothing. We have regarded the, uh, this correction, this depreciation of the exchange rate as a very healthy Depreciation, but of course, in the case of Chile, our depreciation has been about six and a half percent. Compare that to India's rupiah losing about twenty-five percent of value uh, over the same period of time. So it's about four times the devaluation that we got in Chile. Um, devaluations have, uh, you know, uh, within a range, it's pretty healthy to have. I was very concerned when. Um, when we had the exchange rate at about 470, 465, 
that creates a lot of problems for many small and medium-sized enterprises in agriculture and industry. Right now, we have the exchange rate over 500, 505, 510. That's significantly better in terms of the overall prospects. On China, can China sustain? Well, China is engineering a very interesting transition if you rely solely on exports and investments at the engine of growth, and then China right now has an investment rate above 50% of GDP, well, that's one of the highest investment rates in the world. But many of you may have seen uh, some phantom cities, you know. So you build a city, you build infrastructure, nobody uses it. The productivity of that is highly negative. So when you start, you know, doing huge investment projects, you better beware that, you know, that you're doing productive investment. And at a point, uh, then you realize that what you need is to make a shift from investment and exports to consumption, to domestic consumption. It is unsustainable that China has a 35% consumption to GDP rate. That's one of the lowest in the world. So the Chinese need to consume more. That's a good, uh, that's a good thing for the rest of the world if the Chinese start consuming more. And we hope to sell one grape to each Chinese you know, and that will really help. Uh, well, comment on the real estate market. Uh, um, I would say beware of the real estate bubbles. There was a discussion in Chile where we had a bubble, uh, you know, a few months ago. I never thought we had a bubble. And uh, right now it has proven that there was no bubble, you know, but there was a lot of talk. Beware of the bubble. It's like the wolf. Beware of the wolf. The wolf is coming. Um, in order not to have bubbles, you need to have a monetary policy. First of all, you know, you have very, very low interest rates, then that could create a bubble. And the problem with bubbles in financial markets is that they create, when the bubbles burst, then they create big problems for the financial markets, for the banks. They're left with, you know, they may create a financial um, crash. And it's very tough to recover from a financial crash. So healthy real estate markets, uh, you have to consider differently housing than, uh, you know, commercial. And, um, you know, this economy is strong middle class, high income growth. You'll have opportunities in both housing and, and commercial real estate. There is a question at the back about China. I don't remember. Do you remember? China, yes. I, I, ah, okay. Yes. Um, all right. Um, yes, you there. Hi, right, thank you. I'd like to hear more about this uh, Pacific Alliance. It's very interesting. Uh, um, of course, it seems to be driven more by trade and anything else, maybe perhaps like the NAFTA or some other alliances like that. Um, but of course, in recent years, there's been a lot of lessons learned or, uh, or issues that develop out of uh, the more famous bloc, which is the EU. Um, this alliance doesn't have some of the political imperatives and other stresses that characterize the EU, but, and of course, it has a lot of commonality of cultural and linguistic ties that characterize most of Latin America. So what are some of the lessons learned or trajectories that you see for this Pacific alliance, in particular, perhaps eventually um, um, going a little northward, uh, where, of course, the dominant dynamic economies of, of the Americas are located. Uh, thank you. Um, I have a question. Um, what are the terms of the economic debate between the two presidential candidates? One last question there at the back. Uh,
Hello. Um, I just wanted to ask, what have your policies been as finance ministers to try and make sure that sort of development is spread out equally? Because we saw that there was still 3% of people like in indigenous sort of extreme poverty, as you described it. So what have you been doing to sort of tackle that? Um, on the Pacific Alliance, the Pacific Alliance goes well beyond trade. Uh, yes, the, we will reach before the end of the year a 0% tariff on 92% of, of, uh, of trade between our economies. We all have free trade agreements, but the fact that uh, you know, free trade agreements sometimes have long uh, lag periods till you get to zero tariff, and we are accelerating those periods you know, in our trade agreements. Uh, but it goes well beyond trade. We will interconnect our single windows, single windows for foreign trade that I was, that I, I think I referred to the idea that you have a single window, so you get by one click you are, uh, you do an export operation, and that will uh, reduce by half the cost of doing that operation. But it's much better if you interconnect. We already reached an agreement for interconnection of single windows. Now we do have also an agreement for Mila. You may have heard of Mila, but Mila is the common market, I'm sorry, is the common Latin America or the integrated Latin America stock market. So far, Chile, Peru, and Colombia. Meaning that if you are a company listed in Chile, it trades in Peru and Colombia and vice versa. Mexico is integrating into Mila. But Mila only trades uh, so far secondary stocks. And now we have agreed that we'll extend it to IPOs, initial public offerings, to uh, fixed income instruments, to quotas of investment funds and others, ETFs, and so on. So we will do something um, in addition to uh, the current. So we will integrate financially very much, and we will uh, expedite all the process for the movement of people. What we will, where will we end? Um, not yet in a, in a you know, free kind of market for people like you have in Europe. But, uh, but still, we are trying to make the transit of people as quick and as expedited as possible. So the Pacific Alliance, um, and we may have um, a few other members you know, in the medium term. Not immediately, but in the medium term. Uh, what are the terms of the economic debate? Uh, well, in the economy, uh, I, I will expect to see, and I hope to see, more of a debate in terms of how to generate growth um, and opportunities for the economy, which I think is essential to keep the good growth and the rate of growth. So far, um, you know, um, most of the debate has been under whether we need another tax reform. We have done two tax reforms during our government, a 3% of GDP tax reform, which was proposed by the um, candidate of the opposition and our candidate, uh, so the two main candidates want to say, as well, you need 3% of GDP and the other. I haven't seen any justification of that 3% of GDP, why you need that. Uh, but, you know, of course, I'm on one side, you know, I'm on side that you, we think, I think we don't need a tax reform. I think that, you know, for every percentage point of growth uh, that you get, you get another $600 million of government revenue. So the, the true thing is to try to ha keep growth high, revenues will come in, work on productivity for the economy, and then uh, that will keep the economy growing, revenues will flow, and you don't need to increase taxes. We also have a electronic uh, bill law that will significantly 
significantly reduce evasion, tax evasion. So if you reduce tax evasion, you keep the economy growing. You probably don't need to raise uh, tax rates. We did it, actually. We're a center-right government. We raised taxes, you know, for reconstruction, and then we did an increase in corporate income tax, you know, over the long term. The, that's uh, part of the sort of the center of the debate. I think the economic debate is around this tax issue and about, you know, and incentives for investment, which our candidate wants to have this invent, continue with the incentives for investment, and the opposition candidate wants to scrap the incentive for investment. That's probably tackle the, I think what you said, tackle the inequality, tackle the, the unequal distribution. The first thing is uh, what have we done as a uh, finance minister. Well, th there are two things you do, really, in, in, in the economy. First, make sure you keep the economy growing. Because if you grow, you create employment. If you create employment, you create opportunities. And you have people living, you know, and improving their lifestyles uh, and their well-being with their own means. You know, so you don't create dependency on the state. Um, think of the following. We took office when the unemployment rate was at 9%. We reduced it to 5.7. So far, it's 5.7. Well, that means that those people, there are 220,000 people, less people in the unemployment pool. Think of a family. You have no member of the family working. You're living off some subsidies from the government. Then someone, one of the members of the family gets a job. Tremendous increase. Think of the second member getting a job. That really changes the well-being of that family. So it's really growth, job creation. Complement that with social policies. We have a policy, really, I would say, um, state-of-the-art social policy called ingreso ético familiar, the ethical family income. What we say is the following. We will provide subsidies and transfers to the poorest, or to the you know, people who are most vulnerable in the economy, on the, on the country. How do we do this? Well, first of all, we identify who are the most vulnerable. We have about uh, 600,000 people who are on that uh, you know, identified. And we say to these people, okay, three things. We're going to give you three types of transfers. One transfer it's based just because we think we need to help you anyway. So you are tough time. You, it's an unconditional transfer. And the other part are conditional transfers. So how do you do that? Conditional transfer is you, you say if you send your children to school, if you are either holding a job or you are unemployed but you're actively looking for a job, if you have the vaccinations and the health checkups, you know, ready for, you know, you have those on schedule for your children, then you get, you're doing something, you get another transfer. And then there are uh, transfers based on achievements. If you graduate, you get another transfer. So you help people help themselves. That's part of the policy. The other part of the policy is education. That's more long-term, but that's certainly the way to improve um, social uh, standards, the way to improve the capacity of people to help themselves and the way to reduce inequality in the long term. Okay, I think we have time for perhaps one last question. If there is there at the, at the back there. Uh, thank you very much for your um, very interesting talk. 
You mentioned the transition from a middle-income economy to a, 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 a developed economy. <clears throat> and you mentioned the examples of some of the economies that had been successful in doing that throughout the uh, 20th century. Um, to take sort of two examples, you know, one being South Korea um, and one maybe being China, um, both of those economies, uh, their, their development was characterized by extremely high rates of uh, investment as a percentage of GDP and current account surpluses. Um, now, Chile, and this is very much, I think, also the case in other Latin American countries, has obviously enjoyed a, a very large windfall from uh, a structural uptrend in, in commodity prices, uh, but has had current account uh, deficits. Um, and really, investment, while it's been higher in a country like Chile than, for example, Brazil, as a percentage of GDP, hasn't been nearly so high. So I was wondering, and I know that you're leaving office soon, if you could provide some, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, um, a slightly uh, uh, sort of realistic uh, uh, appraisal, whether you really think it's possible that um, Chile can escape the, the middle income trap, particularly when you have an environment in which commodity prices you know, if you can't argue they're going to go very much, uh, very low, they're certainly going to go, not go very much higher, can really do this, uh, and indeed what the blueprint is um, for achieving that when commodity prices fall off. Thank you. So last question. Okay. Um, well, it's, uh, it's, a tough, uh, it's a tough call to say you know, that I mentioned this, you're, we are at $19,000 per capita. Nothing is guaranteed when you're there because we have the experience. Experience tells that you have a pretty much 90% failure rate from those levels, you know, from the path to development to becoming developed. You know, that's the experience from 90% because 90 out of 100 countries didn't make it and only 10, as you were mentioning, South Korea, but a few others in Asia um, they also made it, none in Latin America so far. So if Chile makes it at the current level of income, probably will be the first one to make it because we are, you know, the highest level of income per capita in the region. Um, you were mentioning the windfall. Yes, Chile had a, a very important windfall from copper, but it's been evaporating quickly. Uh, the uh, windfall happened mainly in the late 2000s, the last decade. 2006, let me give you just one example, very important uh, on fiscal revenue. Fiscal revenue from mining was in 2006 and 2007 was 8.3% of GDP, 8 percentage points of GDP. In today's GDP, that would be over $20 billion. Fiscal revenue from mining today is about two and a half to three percent of GDP average over the last two years. So because you not only have a decline in corporate prices, but you have a very big increase in costs, so margins get squeezed, and that squeezes the margin of the main corporate corporation, which is public, and squeezes the margin of private companies, and you pay taxes on your operating margins, on your, on, on your profit, not, you, you don't pay on, your, on the gross value of sales. So what have we done? In this period, we have... Uh, been able to substitute pretty much those five percentage points of GDP that we lost with other sources of revenue in a growing economy, reducing evasion, and uh, uh, you know with 
one tax reform, raising moderate levels of extra income, 0.4% of GDP came from that tax reform, 0.4, the one we did. And uh, we also got some revenue to finance the reconstruction. On the issue of investment, uh, Chile has one of the highest investment rates in the region, probably maybe not the highest, uh, but we are aware that uh, we need to still increase investment. Uh, but to increase investments, we need to provide the incentives for people to invest not to take them away. And that's one of the main points. You, you want to keep growing? You need to invest. You need to invest in technology. We need to invest in fixed capital. You need to invest in people. You need to provide the incentives. Otherwise, you know, uh, investment uh, is not going to keep growing. Um, I am confident that uh, if we keep pace, if we keep the hard work, because I will insist that there are no shortcuts to development, that we can become a developed nation. But we cannot sort of uh, think that uh, we are always there, we're almost there, and because we're there, then we can relax. You know? This is really hard work, and I hope that uh, whoever wins the next election understands that this is the issue, and uh, you know, so start, just start giving in to social demands. We have many cases of that which have not ended well. It doesn't mean that we don't listen. We have, for example, we have been able to increase the educational budget from $9 billion to $13 billion. Now we have student loans for higher education for at 2% rate. Can you get student loans on the market at 2% rate? No. No, but we are providing those. We reduced the rate from 6 to 2% last year. We are providing almost 400,000 scholarships for those who are in the 60% most vulnerable part of the population. So... Uh, that you can do a lot of things, but you know you cannot solve problems like magic or solve them overnight. Okay, I would like to thank uh, Minister Larain on behalf of the audience, and if it, the last time we'll have him as Minister of Finance, hopefully will not be the last time we have him as a public speaker at the LSE. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.